a few years ago, 400 professional and amateur musicians gathered together in a hall in Philadelphia for a unique performance of what was called a symphony for a broken orchestra. Each of the musicians brought with them a broken instrument, held together by tape or a violin that, that had no strings, a bow that had lost all its, most of its hair, or a cello that was carried in multiple pieces. All broken instruments from the, that had fallen into disrepair in the Philadelphia uh, school system. And this concert was organised to raise funds to repair those instruments so that kids could then play them and learn how to, how to play them. But of course, the problem was, none of these instruments worked properly. Some of them just couldn't be played in a normal way at all. Individually, these instruments couldn't really amount to very much. But those musicians, as they gathered together, found creative ways to play them. A trumpet couldn't be blown and couldn't be played in a normal way, but they could tap the keys to rhythm. A bow was scraped among the body of a violin that didn't have any strings to make an unusual sound. And a cellist made a noise just by turning a stringless peg. And incredibly, under the direction of the composer David Lang, together, in harmony, all of these broken instruments produced 40 minutes of music that was described as beautiful and playful and full of joy. A symphony for a broken orchestra. And in many ways that's like the church. Each of us here this morning, I hope you don't get offended by this, we're like broken instruments, aren't we? The best that we can do on our own is to make a little tapping noise or a squeak. But together, if we join in harmony under the direction of our leader, then we can produce a joyful song of praise. This is what Paul taught the church in Philippi in his letter. He knew that there were some in this church who were really struggling to get on with each other. Their relationships were strained, breaking down. And so he encouraged them that despite all of the struggles that they had, despite all of their weakness and their brokenness, they could stand strong. They could serve effectively in God's kingdom if they served together in unity. So we're going to read this morning from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, down through into chapter 2, and verse 5, and Terry's going to come, and she's going to read for us this morning. Thank you. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the Spirit, contending as one that, uh, one that for the gospel, of the faith of the gospel. 
without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Thank you very much, Terry. The believers in Philippi, they knew that living for Jesus was not easy. When Paul and Silas had planted this church, they ended up in prison, their feet in stocks, their backs bleeding from a severe flogging. And now Paul was writing to them from another imprisonment, this time in Rome. And he wrote to them, you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. You are going through the same struggle. You too are facing opposition and attacks from a world system that hated them because it hated their Lord. So these believers knew that the Lord had called them not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him. And that is true for each one of us in in different ways. Jesus was really open about the fact that following Him would not be easy. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 16, In this world you will have trouble. It's a promise, it's a guarantee. Following Jesus is going to be tough. We live in a world that's under the influence of Satan, and so it's against us every step. It comes against us in different ways, in different countries, in different situations, But there's no doubt that we are going to be opposed. We are going to be attacked. We are going to be ridiculed. We are going to be rejected in many different ways if we are committed to following Jesus. But this is one of the reasons why unity is so important. Despite all the pressure from from outside, from this world, if we are united together, then we will be able to stand firm. In one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. As it says in verse 27. One of the secrets of the success of the Roman army was that they fought as a single unit. Example of this was this testudo or this tortoise formation. Where they held their shields in front of them 
in a tight arrangement in front and above them. And as long as they stood together, as long as they stood shoulder to shoulder and moved together as one, they were protected. And they could withstand any attack. And the same goes for the church. When we work together for the faith of the gospel, we were going to be strong. There's amazing strength when we stand together. It's also a source of courage for us. See what he says in verse 28, that Paul knew that if the Philippines, if they stood together, then they'd be able to stand without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. It's an incredible statement, especially in keeping with the, 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 the reality of what they were going to face. The strength of the opposition, the, the danger to themselves. This wasn't just somebody being a little bit unkind to them. This was the threat of direct, violent, brutal persecution. And yet they didn't need to be frightened. That word frightened carries with it uh, the idea of uh, the uncontrollable stampede of startled horses. Your horses are, are startled and they just run away. Well, this church didn't need to run like this. They didn't need to run away in terror and fear of all the things that might come against them. Because if they were united, then they could stand courageous and immovable, even in the face of overwhelming opposition. And this strength together and this courage in the face of opposition, Paul said, would impact people around them. Because verse 28, this will be a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. And that by God. The courage and the strength of this church in the face of intense opposition suffering, and maybe even death, would be a powerful witness to the world that those who reject Christ are lost, but those who trust in Christ are saved. That's what Jesus prayed for when he prayed for us as his people on the night before he was arrested. He said this in John chapter 17, May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and loved them as you have loved me. Unity is essential if we're going to be strong, if we're going to be courageous, if we're going to be effective as we live for Christ in this world. Disharmony and division, it weakens us as God's people. It creates fear. And it makes us ineffective in our witness. Unity is absolutely essential. 
But unity is not just important for practical and pragmatic reasons. If you see how Paul started this section, by calling the believers to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Unity is not just a weapon against the opposition from this world. It's how we live in keeping with the value and the meaning of the gospel. This little phrase, conduct yourselves, it could be translated, live as citizens, or behave like citizens. The city of Philippi, it was classed as a colony of Rome. That meant citizens of Philippi had the of being citizens of Rome. With all the legal and economic and political advantages and responsibilities that that brought. So the citizens of Philippi were called as as people to live as citizens of Rome. But if we believed in Jesus, then our primary citizenship is not based on a city or a country or an empire that we're part of. Rather, our citizenship is in heaven, as Paul said later in his letter in chapter 3. Heaven is our home. Heaven is where we belong. And so, our attitudes, our lifestyles, our morals, our priorities should reflect not those of the people that we're living around, Not those of the cultures that we are from, and we're all from different cultures here. But our lifestyles and and morals and attitudes and priorities should all reflect those of heaven. We need to live as citizens of heaven. Live in a way that is consistent with the fact that that's where we belong. That's where we're headed. So heaven is a place of fellowship. Heaven is a place of love. Heaven is a place of community. Heaven is a place of unity. So that means that's how we should live today. Live as citizens of the gospel, citizens of heaven today. Our unity in in our church with other believers, is a crucial part of how we just live out who we already are. It's also the proper response to what Christ has done in our lives, in laying down His life for us. It's how we conduct ourselves in a way that's worthy of the the gospel of Christ, in a way that's in keeping, that is an acceptable, a proper response to what Jesus has done. This is what Paul developed in in the early part of chapter 2 as we read it this morning. See, if you you look at verse 1, Paul uses the word if four times. If, 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 if. Now, this word could probably, it better carries the sense of since. 
Because Paul is not suggesting that these things might not be true. He's not, suggest- he's, not, he's not expressing the fact that he doesn't know if they're true or not. He's, he knows that they are true. He knows that these are the realities that are true for all of those believers. All who have trusted in Jesus. And he knows that those things are the foundations of our Christian unity. So firstly, he says, if we've trusted in Jesus, then we have encouragement from being united with Christ. We are now in Christ. We've been brought into a a life-giving, intimate and eternal relationship with Jesus that has totally transformed our lives, both now and forever. Secondly, we know that we are loved. We have comfort from His love. The cross of Jesus, as we've been remembered, reminded of in communion, the cross of Jesus declares once and for all time that we are loved. That we're loved by God in an unconditional, unlimited, unending, undeserved way. So God's love is and will forever be the theme of our praise and our worship. God's love revolutionizes our lives. It it gives us value. It brings comfort and reassurance in difficult times. It, It fills our empty and aching hearts. It gives confidence and hope. Not because we always feel it, but because even when we don't feel God's love, we know the reality of it because we look to the cross. And we know that God loves us. Because when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thirdly, we have fellowship with the Spirit. When we put our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit came to live in us and with us. So every day we can live in communion with God. We are never going to be alone. He's always there to teach us, to guide us, to equip us, to empower us, to direct us, to protect us. In those three Statements. Maybe Paul is, is, is pointing forward to the, the work of the triune God in our salvation. So we're united with Christ. We are loved by the Father. We're indwelt by the Spirit. But fourthly, Paul said, we also have tenderness and compassion. When we trusted in Jesus, the Bible says that we were given a new heart with new emotions, new compassion, new care for others. This is what what God prophesied through Ezekiel, the prophet in the Old Testament. He said this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and will give you a heart of flesh. So this is what God has done 
in each one of our lives if we're trusted in Jesus. And this is the foundation of our unity with each other. If we are united with Christ, then we've also been united with each other. If we are loved by God, then we've been brought into one family. If we share in the Spirit, then we've been baptized into one body. And if we've been given a new heart, then that heart beats with compassion and care for God's people. So this morning, folks, we're not called to to form or, or to establish unity in our church. That's not something that we need to make today. That already exists. Because there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. And so what we're called to is to simply live out the unity that God has already established in our lives. And this is a shared responsibility. It's a responsibility that we all share in. All of us are involved in this. Paul challenged the church in Philippi to fill his heart with joy by being like-minded. Having the same love. Being one in spirit and purpose. That's chapter 2, verse 2. Now that's not a call to external uniformity. That's not what Paul thinks unity is about. It's not about all looking the same. All behaving the same. It's not conforming to a code of behavior or a system of laws. It's about something deeper than that. It's about an internal unity. So, being like-minded. Since we're united with Christ, we should think the same things because we have the mind of Christ. Because we're thinking as Christ thought. It's having the same love because we've been experienced a unity of heart. We've experienced God's love. So we should express that love to God's people. It's having a oneness of spirit. Since we're in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, we should have a fellowship with those in whom the Spirit dwells. We're already connected in that way. And it's a oneness in purpose. We've a changed heart. So we should have a common goal and direction. Our mutual concern for each other should be that we all fulfill God's will, God's plan and purpose for our lives. So this is our shared responsibility. All of us who have trusted in Jesus are called to live together in a radical unity of mind and heart and spirit and will. But there's a problem with shared responsibility. 
sure you've noticed this, that if you have a shared responsibility, it is that sometimes that shared responsibility is left to everybody else. I'm sure you maybe have heard the story about when there was an important job to do. And everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it. But nobody did it. Somebody got angry because it was everybody's job. Ended up that everybody blamed somebody because nobody did what anybody could have done. It's what life's like, isn't it? That's somebody else's job. Somebody should do that. But Paul here doesn't let us dodge us. Dodge this responsibility. He doesn't just describe this as a shared responsibility that all of us should be like-minded. He also gets very personal here and says this is an individual responsibility. That each one of us, we are called to behave in a way that will cultivate unity in our church. So look at verse 3. Excuse me. We need to do nothing out of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is about looking out for what suits us, what suits me, what pleases me, what, what is best for me, what promotes me, what lifts me up, what enables me to get ahead. But of course it alienates others. And it divides communities. So instead we need to have a correct aim in life. Verse 4, each one of us should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. We need to be able to see what other people need. Be willing to aim what will promote their good. Even if it costs us, even, even if we have to suffer as a result of it. It's an unselfish, a sacrificial concern produced by genuine love for others. Looking out to other people's interests, not just their own. But if we're going to act in this way, we also need to cultivate not just a correct aim in our lives, but also a correct assessment of ourselves. We must, verse 3 again, do nothing out of vain Conceit. Vain conceit. What is that? Well, that's having an empty pride. An inflated assessment of our own worth. Instead, verse 3 again, we should, in humility, consider others better than ourselves. Now, that's not a low self-esteem. It's not thinking that we're, worth, we're rubbish and worth nothing and putting ourselves down all the time. That is not where God wants us to get. Rather, it's about thinking of ourselves as we really are, but also recognizing other people's true value as well. Humility leads us to look to other people's interests Because we see other people's value. Think of what incident in last year's London Marathon illustrates that. It was a video that was shared on social media. That's why the the picture is so bad. But it was one of thousands of competitors 
was struggling near the end of a, of a marathon, as you would expect after 26 miles. You would imagine they were struggling a little bit. But this guy, he was doubled over, obviously in pain. He looked like he was on the verge of collapse, as others just ran past them because they were near the finish line, and all of them were trying to get the best time. But just before he fell to the ground, another runner came along and grabbed his arm and held him up. Enough just to move forward a little bit. And then another runner ran over and took his other arm. And together the three of them made their way to the finish line. Those two runners on either side, they were willing to set aside their goals, their best time in the race, for the sake of another competitor. And I think that's a little picture of the servant attitude that we need in the church. Not powerful personalities driven by an inflated ego that are always demanding their agendas, their plans, their wants. But rather, a humble assessment of our value and a selfless aim to look not only to our own interests, but also the interests of others. Recognizing that we're called not just to get to the finish line on our own, but to help and to support and to carry each other as we together live the life that God has called us to. But just finally, why should we do that? Well, the answer is in the last verse that we read. Verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. We should have this attitude because that is what a Christ-like attitude looks like. Jesus rejected vain conceit and selfish ambition. Instead, he expressed true humility and selfless concern for others. We can see that right throughout his life, but especially when we look to the cross. In this letter, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul went on to express this, this reality, describe this in detail in a wonderful hymn, a wonderful song describing the servant attitude of Christ. But it's such a, a beautiful part of that scripture that I'm going to leave it for next week and we're just going to focus in on that next week. But here is the answer as to how we can see our church grow together in unity. We need to follow Jesus' example. We need to walk in His footsteps. We need to let Him change our hearts by His Spirit. We need to allow Him to alter our priorities, our value system, our goals and ambitions. We need to become more like Jesus. And we're called to do this whatever happens. This is how Paul started this little section that we've read this morning. Whatever happens, verse 27 of chapter 1, 
As we saw last time, Paul was going through a really tough time. Imprisonment in Rome. Possible martyrdom. Suffering from envy and rivalry of other Christians who were trying to make use of his, his imprisonment to, in order to promote themselves. But Paul was saying, none of that would excuse a divisive or selfish attitude. Whatever happens, Paul knew that he was called to live humbly and selflessly. To serve in unity with God's people. And we are the same. Whatever happens in our lives. Whatever conditions we face, however difficult it becomes, however selfish or difficult other Christians are, we are called to follow Jesus. Unity is vitally important if we're going to stand in the face of opposition and be effective in our witness for Christ. Unity is the only proper response to all that we've experienced through our faith in Christ. And so unity is our responsibility to reject the attitude of this world and instead see the value of other people. Consider what they need and follow the example of Christ. And if we do, then even in our brokenness, our lives can come together as a symphony of praise to our God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ.